someone makes a critical mistake, they decide to give a mouse a cookie. And what they don't think about in the moment is all that that is going to open up. All the things that that is going to require. You know, if you give a mouse a cookie, then he's going to want a glass of milk. And if you give him a glass of milk, he's going to want a straw to go with it. And then, then he's going to want to look in the mirror because he might have a milk mustache. He wants to make sure. And then he decides he needs a haircut and on and on and on. And you know how the book ends up at the very end. The person who was just giving a mouse a cookie is utterly exhausted. They're suffering. I think it's a great description of how when you give yourself to someone else, when you do something for someone else, it brings suffering into your life. You know, my dad gave me this great proverb as a young man that I've tried to remember and practice all of my life, and it goes something like this. No good deed goes unpunished. Isn't that a great just proverb? I think that's in proverb somewhere. Maybe not. Maybe it's not. No good deed goes unpunished. It's a great truth. It's a real truth. When you do something, when you step out, when you serve, when you love, when you give your life away to another person, whether it be big or small, it is going to bring suffering into your life. It's going to cost you. It's going to mess everything up. Give a mouse a cookie or you give something to someone in need, well, it's not going to stop there. It's going to keep going. And you're probably going to suffer because of it. So as the proverb goes, well, it's best just not to do any good deed in the first hand so that you can maintain your comfort and your peace, right? That is certainly what our culture is constantly telling us. You see, we know this truth down deep. That's why we avoid we avoid that conversation. We avoid that difficulty. We avoid people that we know are in real trouble and in real help. And because we live in this culture of incredible affluence, we're actually able to isolate ourselves. We're actually able to make sure that we live in places that there is no need. We're actually able to get away from people who are in need, like people whose lives are in misery, people who, who need things, who are dominated by needs. We, we are able to get away from that and to, to be, uh, put our kids in schools where there's no needs and to live in places where there's no needs and shop in places where there's no needs. I mean, we're able to do this in our culture. And, and even on top of that, our culture is constantly telling us what really matters in this life is that you be happy. That is like the ethic of our culture. To maximize personal happiness is the meaning of life. And so you should pursue comfort in every, at every turn. You should maximize health as much as you can so that you can extend this life because this life is all that you have. You should really make security and safety a top priority in your life. And we're hearing that, we're like, yeah, so what's the problem with that? Mm -hmm. It's what our culture is constantly telling us. Listen, you should be happy. You should be safe. And we have all these ways of distracting ourselves and, 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 and relieving suffering in every way. Like, we can just entertain ourselves. I mean, my gosh, when I go to a place and they don't have Wi-Fi, I'm like, what kind of a place is this? <laughs> What kind of a restaurant are you? No Wi-Fi. You mean I'm going to have to wait on my food to come to the table without escaping and surfing something? You know, there are so many. We're not even aware of the ways in our culture 
that we have learned how to avoid every manner of suffering. Here's the problem. There is no escaping suffering in this world. This world is broken. There's tremendous suffering. And suffering is going to come. And the reality is we have very little resource and strength and ability to handle it. <clears throat> Many sociologists say there's never been a society in the history of the world that is so ill-equipped to handle suffering. Because the message that we live with is avoid suffering at every cost. That is why this passage is so strange to me. Did you notice when she, when Sarah read the passage, did anything just grab you? Did anything just right off the bat just hit you like a two before across the nose? Something that's like, what, what? It probably didn't because we know how whenever we read scripture, we just read right over this. It just goes right by us. It doesn't even grab us because it doesn't make any sense. What I'm referring to is the very first thing the Apostle Paul said in the passage. Did you catch that? This is a very strange thing for a human being to say. I really don't understand how somebody would say this. Now the problem is, the Apostle Paul said this a whole lot. And we don't think he did. Because again, we, we miss it. It just, whoop, just goes right by. Suffering? What? No. Next verse. <laughs> Next verse. Look again at what this very strange individual says. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I rejoice in my sufferings. What? I mean, what an odd thing to say. What, how un-American can you possibly be? Apostle Paul was not an American. <laughs> he did not live in our culture. How strange. And now it becomes even more shocking whenever you understand where the Apostle Paul was when he says this. He doesn't mean I rejoice in my sufferings. He's not talking about the sufferings of like, you know, it being too hot outside or too cold or not having enough Wi-Fi. You know where he is when he writes this? Prison. He's in prison. Listen, I've, I've never been in jail in the sense of like locked up. Thankfully. Okay, not have gotten close a time or two. But I have visited people in jail before. And if you've ever had that experience, it, it's, it's kind of a sobering reality. You know, you go in there and like they don't have windows in there. They don't have paintings in there. Things are not soft and comfortable. There's no Wi-Fi in the prison, in the jailhouse. And you go in and you sit in there and there is nothing to do. There is no one around. There's no interaction. It is a harsh reality. It is suffering. That's kind of the point. I mean, if we start putting Wi-Fi in our jails, we're missing something here, right? But what I mean to communicate here is that the Apostle Paul is actually really suffering. He's sitting in a jail cell. He's been jailed for his preaching of the gospel, and he's writing to this church in Colossae. And he's saying, listen, I want you to understand something. I'm rejoicing in this suffering. So weird. So weird. How do we understand that? We'll get to that in a minute. Paul moves on in the passage, and where he ends up at the end of the passage, I want to kind of jump to the back of the passage, the end of the passage, and work our way back. But look at what he says in verse, the last verse that we're looking at here. In verse 29, he says this, To this end I labor. It is for this purpose 
that I conduct all of my ministry, I'm struggling with all of his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Paul is talking about his ministry and saying, I'm laying it all out on the line. I'm spending all of myself. I'm pushing it to the brink. I'm giving everything I've got for this one purpose. Now that leads us to ask the question, so what, what is the purpose that you're doing all of this, Paul? What is the goal of your ministry? And he says it just before that verse, second part of verse 28. Let me read all of 28. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now here is his ultimate goal. So that we may present everyone perfect in Christ, mature in Christ. Some of our translations say complete in Christ. Paul says that's my goal. Everything that I'm doing, all of my ministry, all of my teaching, all of my explaining of the gospel, all of my admonishing, everything that I'm doing, all of my ministry is for this one end that I may present everyone that I minister to mature in Christ. That's the goal of his ministry. Maturity in Christ, that, that, that everyone that he ministers to may grow up in Christ, that they may be complete in Christ. That's His longing for us. That's God's longing and purpose for us to become mature in Christ. Now, what does that mean? What exactly does that look like? In verse second part of verse 27, Paul has talked about this calling that he's been given to make known the Word of God. And he describes it as a mystery that's been hidden for ages, but now it has been revealed in the Gospel. What is this great mystery? Well, the mystery is what God's purpose for all of human history is. And it's summed up in this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what he says. The very last thing that he says in verse 28. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the heart of the gospel. That is what he is laboring for. Now that is an amazing reality. I mean, if you were to go back into the Old Testament, you were to watch God work and you were to hear his promises, though you would know God is working all things for redemption. He's going to one day make all things new. But how he would do that was a mystery. And then Paul says here in the gospel, it's revealed. It is actually Christ in you. Christ is a word that means king, anointed one, Messiah. They never could have imagined that what God was doing is that not only would this Messiah, this king, this deliverer come to redeem all of God's people, that he would actually come to live in them. For Paul, that's amazing. Christ in you. You know, when someone is united to Jesus by faith, Christ comes to live within you. Now that might be a truth that you're kind of, uh, that is commonplace to you, but let me just invite you to marvel at that reality. That is the hope of glory, that Christ, by His Spirit, comes to live within you. And not only is He now present with us by His Spirit, He actually, the work of the Spirit is to form us into the image of Christ. That is His goal in us, not just to, as we talked about last week, justify us, declare us righteous, but to actually make us righteous, actually make us holy. And the goal of that is to mature us in Christ. Christ lives in us in order that we might become like Him in every way. And Paul says that is the hope of glory. 
We were made for glory. We were made to bear God's image. We were made to be like Jesus, to be human beings that love like Him, that, that trust and rely upon the Father in the way that He did, that whose relationships are like His relationships, that we would live our life not for ourselves, but for the people that are in our life, that are around us, that we would be a people that serve others, that we consider others better than ourselves. That, that is who Christ was. That's what He was like. And that is glory. We all long for glory. We're searching for glory in all of these different ways that don't deliver. You know, we were made for glory. And the ultimate glory for which we were created and for which we're being redeemed is to be formed to the image of Jesus. That we would become like Him in every way. Paul says, that's my goal. You know, I want to win you to Christ. I want you to understand the gospel and trust in Him. But that's not where He stops. I want you to be formed into Christ, to become like Him in every way. That's my ultimate goal. You know, this is huge to get because here we are in the Bible Belt. We talk about this every week. You know, in the Bible Belt, we so often are taught, here, here's what Christianity is. Believe in Jesus. Believe in the facts of Jesus. Ask Him, invite Him into your heart. Okay, we're standing good here. We're standing consistent here so that you can go to heaven when you die. So the whole point of that is so that you can go to heaven when you die, so that you give fire insurance. And it says nothing about what we're called to in this life. And it misses Paul's goal for our life. That we be made complete and mature in Christ. That's his goal for us. But there's something in light of that that really makes this passage jolt us. And that is what Paul says is the way in which that happens. What is the way in which we become mature in Christ? What is the way in which Paul conducts his ministry? What is the essential nature of it? What, is it? what does it look like? How does that happen? How does God form us into Christ? And Paul says it right there at the beginning. Suffering. Now that's a shocker. Paul, you mean to tell me that suffering is the way I'm formed into Christ? And not only that, you mean to tell me that the heart of your ministry is suffering. Paul says that's what I'm saying. Look at that first verse again. We're at verse 24. So we, we looked at what he says right off the bat. I rejoice in my sufferings. Again, very, uh, very odd, very strange. But he says right there, my suffering is for you. I rejoice in my suffering, which is for you. My suffering is for your growth, your benefit. Again, very strange. And then he says something that is bordering on blasphemy. Very, very odd. Very odd. See if this catches you here. What does he say next? I fill up in my flesh. Now, flesh here is not talking about the sinful nature. Sometimes in Scripture we use the word flesh to refer to the old self, the sinful nature. Flesh also refers to just body and in your life. That's what Paul's using here. That's the sense. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. 
Paul says, I fill up in my life and in my sufferings what is lacking in regards to the afflictions of Christ. Wait a minute, Paul, what are you saying to me here? Is Paul saying that there is something lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Is Paul here saying there's something that is incomplete in the sufferings and the affliction of Christ? The answer is no, of course not. In fact, his whole teaching in the whole book, he can't go three verses without showing us that the suffering of Christ on the cross, his affliction is complete, is sufficient. It is the sole basis of our being made right with the Father. And he's going to go back to that over and over and over. So he's not saying that somehow the afflictions of Christ are some way insufficient for our salvation. So the question is, so what does he mean? What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? And here's what he means. The presentation of them to the world. That's what's lacking. Not their merit, not their completeness, but that God intends... For the sufferings of Christ to be presented to the world in the suffering of His people. That's what's lacking. That's how the truth of the gospel <clears throat> comes to us. That's how it's made evident. That's how it's made visible. That's how it's put on display. Whenever God's people suffer with Christ, their afflictions are completing that process of taking the gospel to the world. When, when we suffer, we are presenting the afflictions of Christ to the world. Now just think about for a minute the very essence of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God has redeemed us, has redeemed His people through death. The, the, the message of the gospel is the message of the cross. Now sometimes that becomes so commonplace to us that we miss the shock of that. The upside down reality of that. That the way in which God rescues His people is not by sheer force and, and might, but rather by suffering. I mean, just, just put that, just for a minute, just ponder this reality. There is only one God who suffers. That is stunning. And that the way in which He will redeem all things is through being murdered by His creation. The only way in which He will win and have victory is through dying. That the King that will reign over all things actually wins by being shamefully executed on a cross. Do you see how opposite the way that the things work in the world that really is? How shocking the gospel is. How upside down it is. It's all about affliction. And this is actually the way in which God works. It's the way in which, which life comes. It's the way in which God redeems all things. It is through death that life comes. That is the only way that life can come. Martin Luther has called this the theology of the cross. He said, really, the, the only way that we understand God is through the lens of the cross. Any other way, we're going to conceive of God in our own notion is he's, he's powerful like the world is powerful, like we are powerful. And he says, no, no, no. The only way to really understand who God is is to look at Him through the lens of the cross. 
Because that is the ultimate revelation of who God is. What does God's power look like? It looks like giving up His power. What does life look like? It looks like Him going through death to get to resurrection. You see, it is through the cross that we begin to understand how God brings life. You see, the message must be conformed to the method. The method of ministry must look like the cross. That is what gives it its power. It's when we see the suffering of God's people along with the message of the gospel that the power of God is unleashed in the gospel. Let me just say, I know this is so hard for us to understand. This is incredibly hard to understand. I mean, because, and here's why, it's particularly hard in the American church. Why is this so hard to understand why the gospel brings suffering into our life and why suffering is the method of the gospel? And it's because of this. In our culture, we have assimilated the gospel to our culture. We talked about a minute ago that our culture says, listen, here, here's what matters in life. Personal happiness, comfort, security, health, safety. Those are your main priorities. So go and climb the ladder. Upward mobility, American dream, have it all. You only go around once. And so what happens is as American Christians, we assimilate the gospel into that. And we begin to believe that the gospel means that God is going to bless me in those ways. That if I'm good and I do things right, then God is going to give me a happy and blessed life. That I'm going to be healthy. That I'm going to be wealthy. That I'm going to be prosperous. That, that my kids are going to turn out the way that I want them to turn out. That I'm going to live a, a long, healthy life. That, that, that everything's going to go right. That Jesus' job is to bless me in that way. And it just, it just comes into the fabric of how we think. And so as, as believers in our culture, whenever, we're, whenever things are not going our way, whenever we're suffering, whenever hardship comes into our life, whenever we're being mistreated by other people, whenever that happens, we become incredibly discouraged because we say, why is this happening to me? God, do you love me? Why is my life not turning out that way? And as believers, we're always kind of pretend like everything's great. And so we become incredibly discouraged and confused when the least amount of suffering comes into our life and we say, wait a minute, God, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. Because you promised me if I came to you that you were going to bless my life as we see worldly blessings. And we get incredibly confused. So I've talked a number of times about the mural we see on the way to worship. I hope you look at that every day as you're driving, to every Sunday that you're driving to church. You know, if you're coming from Sand Mountain, you might need to drive that way and turn around and come back this way because on the side of the building is a big, beautiful mural, right? What does that mural say? You can't help but see it. God, guns, and guts keep us free. That is American Christianity. That is a distortion of the gospel. Just think about that for a minute. What, what, what is the underlying message being communicated there? God is about giving you worldly power. And we know our God is the right God. 
because our guns are bigger than yours. And the point, if you are true to God and you stand with God and you have guns and guts, then you're going to be free. Then you're not going to suffer. You're not going to be. No one will rule over you. It's all about power. Not this gospel. It's completely different. This is why it's so confusing to us when we hear stories about the church and other cultures. Mike shared one with us this morning. This church in the Congo where they make less than $400 a month and they're dancing to give away their money? What? I mean, this is like outer space kind of stuff. Let me tell you something. The church around the world doesn't struggle with this idea. It just makes sense. My king suffered for me. I'm suffering with him. Let's go. That's how the gospel go forth. We've talked in here about the church in China. We've talked about a particular church named the Early Rain Covenant Church. It's actually a Presbyterian church in Chengdu, China. It's a particular city. I got to go visit there a number of years ago. I got to meet believers there. Probably some of those believers are in that church. I have other friends that have been a part of getting that church started. It is an entirely Chinese church. It is an underground church. If you know anything about China, there is tremendous religious persecution. It is illegal to be a Christian there. And so there is a massive underground movement of churches. The gospel is exploding in China. Many think that in 50 years, China will be the largest Christian nation in the world. Maybe they'll send some missionaries to us. They're already starting to do that, by the way. So Early Rain is an underground church meeting in secret. It's actually a large church meeting in secret. And in December 9th of this past year, a widespread persecution broke out, broke out in Chengdu, and a hundred members of Early Rain were arrested in one day. One of those was the pastor, Wang Yi. He actually is in prison even now. As we sit here right now, he is sitting in a prison cell. And before he was arrested, actually three months before his arrest, he actually wrote a letter. And I've shared this letter with you, and oh my goodness, we ought to just read this every week. Because it just wakes us up to something that we're blind to. And he wrote a letter to be released when he was arrested, because he knew he was being arrested. He knew it was coming. He knew that persecution was right around the corner. And he didn't run from that. He didn't avoid that. And he wrote this letter, and it's so stunning. He says in this letter, listen, my greatest hope is not to be released. I am doing this for the sake of the gospel. And we believe that it is through our suffering that China will be reached. So I embrace this. This is what God has called me to. I rejoice in it. And we read it and we're like, who would ever say something like that? Except for the Apostle Paul. It's so hard for us to get it. I just, I just wonder this. What would we do if we were sitting in that cell right now? Six months separated from our wife and children. His wife actually got released a month ago so she could go take care of their little children, their little babies. I mean, what, what would we say in that jail cell? Now, I honestly wrestle with that person. 
I mean, would we be sitting there saying, what? Am I stupid? All I got to do is deny this and I'm out. What is this getting me here? Why am I here? God, where are you? We made a deal. You're going to bless my life. Why am I sitting in a jail cell? You know, if you forgot me, I think that's honestly what we would be thinking. Because we don't understand the gospel. Paul says, my sufferings are for your sake. And when I suffer, you actually come to be formed into the image of Christ through my sufferings. It is through suffering that we are changed and transformed and glorified. That is God's method. It is how He rescued us and it is also how He will work it out in our lives. And it is how this message of the suffering of Christ will go into the world through the suffering of the message bearers. There is no other way. John Piper tells this great story in one of his sermons. It's actually a sermon called Doing Missions When Dying is Gain. I listened to that as a young believer and just was disturbed for about a week. But he tells this story, this great story in there about uh, an evangelist in India. And this evangelist in India is, uh, he, he was uh, a poor man, he was an uneducated man, but he was a follower of Jesus and his passion was that, 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 that Indians would know about Jesus. And so he goes from tribe to tribe in India, and he would go in, he would share the gospel. And, and, and finally, at the end of a long day, and he'd been on a long missionary trip, and he comes into this village, and he's, he's so very tired, but he goes into the village, he goes into the central square, everyone crowds around, and he stands up, and he preaches the gospel, and he proclaims Jesus, and they mock him and deride him and drive him out of town. He goes out of the village, He's so discouraged. He lays down under a tree. All his emotional energy is just spent. And he falls asleep. And he thinks, they might come out here and kill me for all I know. But I'm just done. He's so discouraged. So he falls asleep and he wakes up the next morning. And the tribe is standing around him. And he starts to tremble. He starts to think, I'm a goner. It's over. They've come to kill me. And the chief tribesman steps up to him and says, we came out here to see what kind of man you are. And when we saw your blistered feet, we knew that you're a holy man. So we want to know why have you blistered your feet to come tell us? What, what have you blistered your feet to come tell us? And he shares the gospel and the village comes to an incredible picture of the power of our suffering. When we suffer, the truth of the gospel gets embodied. So let's just try to apply this just for a minute, just kind of bring it home to our life. Here, here's, I think, the ultimate question I'd like for us to just wrestle with. I think it's what this passage invites us to wrestle with, and it's this. Will I embrace suffering in my life the cause of Christ or will I live for comfort and security I think that's the ultimate question will I embrace this will I actually say okay I, I will I will embrace suffering and I begin to understand this is how it works 
or will we? And it's so easy to do this. It's so easy to be a follower of Jesus and have your best life now all at the same time in our culture. Because those are those just fit together in our culture. So that's the ultimate question. Will I just kind of have Jesus in my life and, and you know, entertainment and, and fun and, and chasing the American dream and all of that in Jesus too? Or will I embrace suffering because of Christ? Now I think the question that comes up for us is because we have very little suffering. We have very little suffering in our culture because there is incredible wealth and affluence in our culture. None of us see ourselves as wealthy until you hear a story like what Mike told us about most of the world. We, we are, wealth isolates you from suffering. That is the poverty of wealth. And so you might be asking to yourself, what, what, what are you asking me to do? Do I need to go search out suffering? And the answer is no, because that's not the point. The point is not to seek out suffering. Here's the point. Follow Jesus and suffering will come. Seek to serve people in your life. As we think about, okay, what does it look like to become like Jesus? Well, it means that I'm a, I'm a servant of others. Now listen, when you, when you try to be a servant, something's going to happen. You're going to get treated like a servant. That's why we don't like to be servants, right? I like to serve on my terms from a position of power. Okay, I've given something to you. Okay, there you go. That's not a servant. A servant is someone who's willing to be walked on. It's kind of servant Jesus was. Are you, are, you, are you willing to be a servant like Jesus to the people in your life? Are you willing to love like Jesus? And listen, love is suffering because it's giving up yourself for the sake of others. Are we willing to see the needs that are all around us? You know, here we're so, we're actually, we have an advantage here among American believers. We live in Dade County. That's a wonderful thing because there are actual needs that we can see. We're not so isolated from trouble and the misery of the world that we can't see it. That would be real poverty. We actually live in a place where we can see and know people with needs. So follow Jesus into those places of needs. And here's just one other practical suggestion. Do the people in your life, maybe your coworkers, family, neighbors, do they know you're a Christian? I mean, not like, you know, Southern Christian, like, yeah, got it, believe all that. But like, that you are a Christ follower that has surrendered your life to Him and you're going to follow Him. Do they know that about you? Let them know that and see if you don't start to suffer. See if you don't start to be made fun of and looked down on, discriminated against, ignored, mistreated at work. It will happen. And guess what? You can rejoice for sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Let me also, and this is the last thing I'll say and we talk about it for a minute. Let me speak to those of us who are suffering right now. Because there's some of us who are. Are you losing hope? Because I think that's one of the great challenges. Again, because we're, we're in this culture where everybody seems to be like winning. You know, hashtag winning, hashtag blessed. And we look all around and we're like, I ain't winning. I see all these happy families all around me and I'm a single mom. 
I see all these people who are like doing so well, and I'm like in debt up to my eyeballs. I see all of these people that are just flourishing around me, and I'm struggling. What's wrong with me? And we get encouraged, we get discouraged there. And we think I'm losing here. We lose heart. And this is enormously encouraging for Paul to say, you are sharing in the afflictions of Christ. And your suffering has purpose. That, that, that changes everything in suffering. If you know that everything you're suffering has eternal purpose. Let me just close with this story. Just this past week, I heard this wonderful story. It was a friend of mine. Her and her husband, this has been many years ago, but they uh, were, I think they heard a sermon that got them all worked up and excited, and they went out and they did something really foolish. They took a foster child into their home. They got so worked up about the kingdom of God, and they just went and did something crazy, and so they adopted a 10-year-old little girl from their community as a foster child. And she comes into their home, and if we have foster families in here, and as you get close to them, here's one of the things you're going to realize real quick. That you will suffer. You will suffer big time if you do something like that. And so they were right in the midst of the very hardness of this, of trying to love this little girl that was so broken. And, and, and they were just suffering. And one night, uh, the, uh, the, the, the mom had just put uh, all the kids to bed and she comes down and she's sitting at the table. She's just utterly exhausted, utterly discouraged, just thinking to herself, what is going on? What, why do we get ourselves into this? What is happening? And a friend of theirs was visiting. He's actually a minister in another town and, and he was uh, very close to the family and he, he was staying with them and he was sitting at the table that night and there, he was having a cup of coffee and she comes down and he says, I know you're troubled. Tell me what's happening. And she just pours out her heart and she says, it's so hard. I don't know how I can keep going. And he listens to her very compassionately. He says to her, you are suffering redemptively for the cross of Christ for her sake. And she said, this is her description of it. In a moment, it all shifted in her heart. She was like, so everything I'm going through has purpose for the cause of Christ? It changed everything about her reality. It's that she was like, wait a minute, I'm sharing in the afflictions of Christ. I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ for the sake of those I'm seeking to love. It is through my suffering that God is powerfully at work in this little girl's life. Whoa, I had no idea. And it changed everything for her. So let's stop right there and just have a few minutes to discuss together. How does this <coughs> challenge you? How does this strike you? How does this move you, disturb you, make you want to run or throw an egg at me? Let's talk about it for a minute. So real quick, <coughs> yeah. I, I struggled with that verse 24 for weeks now. Mm -hmm. Just explain it again. To know that because of the lacking part, I thought last one didn't know this. Yeah, right, right. But I knew it wasn't. Because, uh, 
how do, how do we, like in our suffering, is it lacking? It's not necessarily lacking, mm -hmm. it's just us displaying. That's right. Is what it That's is. That's right. So it's, it's, the lacking is the sense of like, God's got this big thing he's accomplishing, which is the redemption of the world. How he's going to accomplish that is through the suffering of Christ on the cross. That purchased it. That won the victory. But then he's got to apply that victory throughout history. And the way in which he applies that is through the suffering of his people, which is the continued suffering of Christ. It's amazing that when I suffer, Christ is suffering. You know, you get this with the Apostle Paul. You know, when he's converted, uh, he was going around, he was persecuting and killing Christians, and Jesus appears to him on the Damascus Road. And he appears to Paul, and he says, his name was Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people, but why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, when did I persecute you? He said, Jesus is saying, Lord, anything you do to my people, you're doing to me. Our union with Jesus is so full and so real that anything that happens to us happens to him. So our suffering is the continued affliction of Christ. Not that he's accomplishing something more than he's already won, but it is applying it. It's causing the... The, the benefit and the effect of the cross to fall out of history. And it only happens through suffering. Because again, the cross tells us this, suffering is how he wins. He overcomes evil and hatred and sin through suffering. Overcomes death through death. It's, this, it's a mystery, right? That is a mystery. Nobody could have ever thought this up. Oh, I know how God's going to win. He's going to die in the place of all these rebels and enemies. Yeah, Hutch, I feel like I was really convicted. Um, I feel like often I go through seasons where I'm really cold and then I start to feel convicted and before I feel like I can experience the joy or the peace that comes from the gospel, I have this like mantra that's like I didn't sign up for this like how many times I've told God like mm, didn't really sign up for this um, and like it was you explaining to Mark like I know I'm going to be convicted and I know I'm going to be like sorry God like you're right and I'm going to feel great about it but I just feel stuck in these seasons of like no God this isn't what I want and I'm like a pouting child and I know that but so much of it, I think, does come from suffering. It does come from seeing, like, oh, I've got to give this up, and it's not on my terms, and I'm upset about that. Um, but just to see that shift of, like, one, I'm glad I didn't, like, <laughs> there's some parts I'm glad I didn't sign up for it, yeah. because in my sin, I wouldn't choose yeah, it. Yeah, I wouldn't have signed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also the humility, like, that's a very prideful stance. Mm -hmm of like, God, I get to pick when I suffer, yes. and I'm probably not going to pick to suffer. Yes. Um, so there's like a, a resigning to humility and trusting God in it, but there is also a dignity in it, and I think that's a piece that I don't, even after the whole process is through, I don't yes. often see the, the dignity and the call um, that's like really beautiful. Yeah. So I was just really convicted yeah. and encouraged. Yeah, well thank you for sharing that. I, 
completely 100% identified. And I think that is what is the hardest thing about following Jesus in this culture because of the affluence and the comfort and the security. I mean, the more you have, the harder it is to let go of it, the more your heart falls in love with those things. And so suffering is like the opposite of American culture. Because <laughs> it's like the whole purpose of life is to avoid suffering. And it comes into our faith where I, we have that same, I have that same reaction when suffering comes into my life. I'm like, wait a minute, God, where are you? I didn't sign up for this. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. Whenever he never promised that, he promised me life. He didn't promise me trouble-free life. He didn't promise me no suffering. And uh, so we got to work real hard to understand the gospel, to rescue our faith from American culture. And I'm not beating up on America. I love America. We... We, we are here for the good of America. But the church has got to be the church for America to be, to, to know flourishing. <clears throat> Let me close this because I talked too long. But we can keep talking about these things. I know that a lot's happening when we talk about this. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you help us to see that at the heart of our hope and at the heart of the gospel is our King nailed to a cross. I just pray that we would be a people that just meditate on the gospel, that we marvel at it, that we fix our eyes on the one who was willing to lose everything for us. That, that that would just start to shape our lives, that we would be people that could let go of our stuff, that we could, be, we could let go of, our, of our, our, our hobbies and our agendas and our comfort and our safety even. Because we are so compelled by a kingdom that cannot end. Do this in us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.